If you want to be successful, learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Hi, I'm Nil Spinda, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Binya, and today I'm joined by Michael Arisman. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nils. Good to be here. Hey, I'm super excited to have you on. And Michael, you're the president and founder of People Implications. Before we dig into all things leadership, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and the type of companies that you work with? I formed the company about 18 months ago. COVID seemed like a good time to do something different. And What the company primarily focuses on is bringing HR strategies into smaller companies that need that expertise, but can't afford it. You know, if you think about the challenges with HR, there's a lot of complexities, in particular in smaller companies that may have, you know, all different types of lines of business and people challenges, et cetera. But their model is not set up to get somebody who has the level of experience that I have. And this allows me to partner with those companies and help them build their people strategies aligned to their business strategy. The second thing I do, and and what I absolutely love, I have a huge passion for, is I do coaching for HR leaders. There's plenty of coaches out there and there's great coaches, right? There's there's just really phenomenal people that are very, very good at coaching. I have a similar background to coaching, but what I focus specifically on is HR leaders themselves. So it's really a combination of coaching, the kind of generic coaching that you would get with anybody. But more specifically, when you're an HR leader, what are the things that you struggle with? What are the challenges? You know, how do you face particular issues within the business? Not just from a tactical standpoint of literally maybe what to do, but how do you emotionally handle some of the ambiguity that comes with being in that role? And that's where people struggle with a lot. And I built my entire career. I've been really blessed because I have all kinds of contacts. I have people that I've known for decades. And when I got stuck on anything, first thing I did is pick up the phone and I would call somebody and say, okay, well, let me, let me run a scenario by you. Have you dealt with this? And, and most of the time it was an accelerator to get to the right answer really quickly. And so I'm working with a number of CHROs at sort of mid-sized companies, anyone who's up and coming in their career, you know, and wants to have somebody that can help partner and coach them on how to navigate being an HR professional. I do that as well. And then I also teach in my spare time. So I'm teaching at two different universities and I teach in the graduate school at one and I'm teaching undergraduate HR course right now at another university. And that's, that's a lot of fun. 
That's phenomenal. Well, I don't know where you find the spare time to also teach at graduate and undergraduate levels, but it's thoroughly impressive. One question about why the smaller companies, you said like a lot of times these organizations don't either have the person like with your background, you know, available or employed by the company or don't have access to that. So you've spent your career in some very large organizations, which we're going to talk about. Well, why is it important to help the smaller companies now with your business? Well, you know, I think the challenge is when you have a large company, you also have a lot of resources and you can put a lot of resources to particular problems. You know, let me just pick one out. Let's just say you've got an issue where you have people in multiple countries and you've got all kinds of employment law and immigration challenges that come with that. When you're a large organization, and as you mentioned, I work for some of the largest in the world, you have all kinds of resources. You have whole departments of people doing that. When you're a small company, you have the exact same challenges but no resources. And so the options are typically to just do the best you can and hope you get it right. Or you go out and you hire legal firms and other much more expensive ways to handle that. You know, the reality is that the same problems, when we're talking about people and leadership and strategy and business execution, large companies have those problems magnified, but a smaller company has the exact same challenges just without the resources. Let's shift gears and let's go back in the time machine and take me back to maybe even before you got into the world of HR, because you and I had chatted before and your background wasn't exactly perfectly lined up with being groomed to be a VP of HR at a global organization. So give me a little bit of flavor on what was going on in your life prior to actually discovering the field of HR and getting into what ultimately became an incredible career. I like to say I took a scenic route through college. I finished my undergraduate degree literally a week before my 10-year high school reunion, right? So that gives you a little bit. And and by the way, I don't have a PhD and I'm not a doctor. So during that period of time, I was also, from a personal standpoint, was really, you know, in a difficult place. And I got involved in a number of things, including drugs and alcohol and, and things that really just took me down a dark path. Now, When I was 25, I was working, I was running a catering company that did catering for concerts and films here in the Seattle area. So I was in the entertainment business and I worked directly with rock stars and bands that would come to town. I would work on the movies that were filmed here. And I was in that industry and I was also just sort of heavily involved in this this sort of personal crisis around drug and alcohol addiction. While I was struggling through that, I was also learning. If you can learn to keep Madonna and Motley Crue happy, those are skills that transition later on in your career. And corporate CEOs are not that big of a deal, you know, once you've had that experience and not nearly as demanding, by the way. When I was 25, I just had a, I can call it maybe a moment of divine intervention, but it was just really clear if I didn't make a change, I wasn't going to live to the age of 30. Fortunately, I was able to, to make that change and, you know, Thankfully, I've been, I've been sober ever since, coming up on 32 years. And what that did is it, I went back to school and to graduate school after that. And when I ended up in HR, I was walking into an HR role, having been a line manager. I was managing people in a construction business at 17 years old. Not well, mind you, I will say. You know, I, then I went and I ran that catering company. Again, I was managing people. In some cases, it would be, you know, we had a lot, maybe a large show or something. It'd be 10 or 15 people. In some cases, it might be one or two. 
but I was managing people. I, I then went to the Westin Hotel in Seattle and I was a banquet manager, you know, and if you've ever been to an event at a hotel, you know, you know how that, that system works. While I was going through this period of time in my life, I was learning what it meant to manage other people. So when I found myself and GE recruited me out of grad school into an HR role, what I found was I didn't know HR all that well. I mean, I knew a little bit of it, you know, because I studied it in grad school and then I had to learn it on the fly, but I really knew what it was like to be a manager of people. And I knew what it was like to try to solve something for a customer, to try to achieve an outcome because all my experience had been, you know, P&L roles. If the customer wasn't happy, if, if the billing wasn't correct, you know, if I didn't have the right resources and that ability to sit down with managers and understand where they were, understand what it's like to try to lead a team of people to accomplish an outcome. You know, I wasn't a person on the sidelines saying, you know, here's our policy, go follow that. I was the person going, okay, so what are the people implications of what we're trying to do here? How do we best address this issue? You know, and as an added benefit, because of my past, which was not the typical high school, college, grad school, you know, career, I had the ability to read people pretty well. I had the ability to understand the the ploys that people bring into the workplace and the challenges and, and the dynamics of all of the, all of the emotional baggage that comes in, you know, and the ability to navigate those things was, was incredibly helpful as was the perspective. When you can look at your life and you can walk into a situation in a corporate environment, you can feel really stressed about the ability, whether you're able to produce something, whether you're able to deliver an outcome, you know, maybe you don't know the answer to something. A lot of people face this stress all the time. But the perspective I had was, look, this is easy compared to what I've been in my life. This is not stressful. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen here, right? Maybe this doesn't work out. And fortunately, I had that perspective in my career that when things didn't work out, and I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I made some hilarious mistakes. I can talk about a few of those. But I always had the attitude of, great, okay, what do we learn from that? How do we apply it? You know, and then sitting down next to managers, what I discovered was I got really fortunate in the first two jobs I had in GE and Pepsi, where they really wanted HR people who fundamentally understood the business. Because the, the context for what you're trying to do as a business is what all of the people stuff is, is aligned to. And so I was able to do that. I had the background, I had the experience, I had the way to think about the world that way. And it just was a natural fit. And I remember getting that first HR job. And after about a month or so, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this, to be honest with you. I mean, I've only done this for half of what they were paying me, you know? And, and that ability to think about and, and appreciate that role and all the complexity and all the ambiguity and everything that comes into it, you know, has just blessed me beyond belief that I've had this career. Now, I know that once you got into the world of HR, everything changed, right? Like you said, you were thrilled that you could actually get paid to do this work and be with people and help them work through these problems. But I also know there was, there was a hunger, a drive to continue to push. And there was a particular job description that caught your eye. Was it relatively early on? And I want to hear the story behind that because that one speaks volumes to what it really takes to have a long-term view from a career perspective, which I think is a really key element of leadership. Yeah. So let me take you back. And, and you know what? it was really early on. It was probably two months into my first job. 
Okay, wait, hold on. So, so just got in grad school, graduated, just got in two months of the first job. You're like, wow, this is amazing. Then this job description catches your eye. Right. So, so what I started to think about was, wow, this is a really amazing role that I have. You know, like, how did I luck into this? The generalist, they call it then, it's HR business partner, they call it now. I got to do a little bit of everything every day. And so what I loved about that is how dynamic it was and how involved I was. So I thought, what would a career in HR even look like? The only advice I'd been ever been given about a career was like, whatever you do, don't go into HR, right? That was literally the advice I, I was given. And so I found myself and just loving it. And I went on GE. I was working for GE at the time, right? This is 1995, 96. And GE is the number one company in the world, right? Jack Welch is a CEO and, and just really amazing that I got that opportunity. I was on their HRLP program and you know got a lot of exposure to those executives and, and strategy. And I went on their website and I found a job, vice president of HR for NBC Sports. And because you know at the time, GE owned NBC. And so I thought, what? That would be so cool, right? I'm going to be go hang out when... New York and Manhattan with Bob Costas and be rubbing elbows with athletes. And I'm like, okay, that's the job I want. Now, you have to imagine how the ego it would take to sit there two months into your first HR job and think, I'm going to do that. You know, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to actually apply for that job because no one would give it to me. But I printed the job description. It was three pages. And it was three pages of all the stuff you had to learn. And what I did is I carried that job description around with me for seven years, those exact three pieces of paper. And what I would do is I would look at that and say, okay, well, what do I need to know here? And I'd see things. I'm like, oh, affirmative action plans. Yeah, I think we're a federal contractor. We got to do that. So I would go to my boss and say, hey, did we do affirmative action plans? And she goes, yeah, we have to do those. I'm like, I want to do that. Can I work on that? And then I would see something else and, you know, well, you know, maybe unions or, or collective bargaining or, or maybe it was sales compensation or, or executive comp or equity or benefits, 401k. I mean, you name it. There was three pages of these things. And so my focus was, I don't care what you pay me and I don't care what my title is. What I care is I'm going to fill out all three pages and I'm going to learn how to do all this stuff. And what was amazing about that is, What I discovered early on is if you have that attitude, if you're the one who's constantly raising your hand and say, I want to work on that or, you know, tell me how that works. And, you know, I want to be involved in this project. You're constantly taking on these things because you want to learn them. You're all all automatically in like the 95th percentile, you know, because most employees are often doing the opposite. They're like, well, what's in my job description? What is it? You know, who am I working too much? You know, and I didn't care at all. Right. I mean, I was single at the time. So I'm like, I'd work around the clock. So I really focused on that. And that led me down the path of my career. And it caused me to take jobs and move from jobs. When I had learned, I thought everything I needed to learn in that environment. And then I would take a job that filled in a whole bunch of missing components. So I went from GE to Pepsi, you know, and they're both great companies. Leaving GE was tough, right? I would love GE, you know, at, at the time. And, but Pepsi allowed me to do a whole bunch of things that I wasn't going to get to do at GE. And then I left Pepsi for a company nobody has ever heard of. It's a company called Krona. It doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. But I walked into that job and people like, you're crazy. Why would you leave GE and Pepsi to go do this? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I take this job and in the first six months of this job, we do like four acquisitions. 
So I walk into the office one day, the president of the company calls me into his office says, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, I don't know why. And he goes, here's a binder. Corporate wants us to buy this company or the board wants us to buy this company. Hop on a plane, fly to Boston, call me in 24 hours and tell me if we should buy this company or not. You don't get to touch stuff like that at GE and Pepsi for 20 years. And here I was being handed, just handed these things. Now, I will tell you, I had no idea what to do. <laughs> and this has been a hallmark of my career. I have landed myself in jobs where I'm excited. This is new. This is going to be great. I've gotten in the job, looked around and went, oh, oh, nothing I know how to do applies here. And it's forced me to have to completely rethink how it works. And to finish that story about that, that time the, the president handed me that binder, I flew to Boston. I called up our attorney, a guy in New Jersey, good friend of mine still, said, meet me in Boston. We spent 24 hours together. I sent back a proposal at three in the morning. I got a response at 3.30 in the morning. And the president said, well, now can you sketch together a go-to-market sales model for the company that you're suggesting that we buy? And I'm like, I, I don't know how to do that. But I, you know, I sat down and thought, okay, well, what do I know? What are the right questions to ask? And, and I pieced something together and, and we went ahead with the deal. We did a bunch of acquisitions. I think we had about 500 employees when I started. We had about 2,000 or over 2,000 when I left. And then 9-11 happened. All the revenue dried up. And I spent the next six months taking us from 2,000 back down to 500. You know, and these are the kinds of experiences that were invaluable in my career. You know, and this is what opened the door for roles that I eventually had as CHROs and you know, major companies and you know, huge responsibility around the world. It was taking on these different challenges, but with a purpose. Because I wasn't so concerned with my title. I wasn't so concerned with the compensation. I mean, it needed to be, you know, basically a certain level and anything above that was fine. But I was concerned about, can I learn something? I love the way that you found out what you had to learn in order to get to that next level and the next level beyond that and the next level beyond that. It's out there already, right? It already exists. There are 8 billion job descriptions available today for any role, virtually anywhere in the world, for anything you could possibly want to do. If you want to get promoted, don't go ask your manager and say, hey, what do I need to do to get promoted? Go find a job description that outlines everything that that role encompasses, maybe combine a few, and carry around the paper for years and start acquiring those skills just like you did. It's an inspiring story, and there's so much power and holding onto that and being the one to say, you know what, that's the job I want. And if I want that job, here's the laundry list of things I got to do. Now I have a map of where I need to go and what to do. Exactly. And it changes the framework of how you think about the work you're doing. It changes the direction of it. And I can't tell you in my career, I mean, it, it must be thousands of people have come to me. Can you help me manage my career? Right. Because, you know, I'm ahead of HR where people do that all the time. And I always start with the question, well, you know, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? I mean, if you don't know where you're going, any road's going to get you there, right? One of my favorites. Yep. And so I, I challenge people to think, you know, sort of right to left. Now, in this particular example, I never ended up in that job. Right. I ended up in other VP of HR jobs in a very different directions and in, in different industries. 
But the point was to think about sort of right to left. And in a lot of cases, and this is what I tell college students all the time, your next job does not really matter. Neither does the one after that, and probably neither does the one after that. What does matter is, are you taking roles that give you ability to learn, to apply things that are going to come in handy down the road for you and, and build that portfolio? Because people get really hung up on you know, that next job or the right title and, and some of those things, as opposed to simply saying, you know, this is a journey. Yeah, 100%. One of the things that somebody told me a long time ago was, if you want to be successful, learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, if you are always comfortable and you feel like you really know your job well, you're not learning, you're not being stretched, you're not growing. You know, I can sit here and tell you for the last 25 years, I've been uncomfortable virtually every day. Yeah, <laughs> It's exactly why you've had the success that you've had and why people would look at your career and be like, wow, how on earth did you put that together? You did it by being uncomfortable. That story about flying to Boston to evaluate the company and having no clue and never been involved with an M&A deal before, I think speaks volumes to that exact position, but you got through it, you figured it out. And that's the truth, right? There's a, there's a vision and there's a next step. If you know the next step, the next step will reveal itself at the appropriate time. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. Earlier, we were talking about the problems that occur from a management and leadership perspective in large companies are the same things that occur in small companies. So if we take it down to like the root causes of some of the biggest challenges that you've seen, the skills that you've helped people develop to become better leaders, like what's at the root core of what we all at some point get wrong in our leadership world? That's a complicated question because there's a lot of variables at play. What I would say is the single greatest challenge that people have as leaders is not in the what, but in the how. I would articulate that it's primarily an emotional challenge more than it's a mental challenge. You know, what I mean by that is to be an effective leader it requires you to make decisions sometimes without a ton of clarity. It requires you to take risks on people. It requires you to get to know people and be vulnerable. And it requires you to be uncomfortable. Someone asked me this question, I don't know, it was a few months ago. What's probably the most common thing you've heard from managers? And the most common challenges that managers you know, are facing internally, it's that lack of ability to allow somebody to grow and be uncomfortable because one of two things tends to happen. Number one, I may not give them the feedback that they need because I don't want to make them uncomfortable, which is really, by the way, normally it's usually complete BS. It's usually, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Exactly. And, and if I do... I'm too quick to rescue them from that situation. 
and people get very risk averse. And, and it makes sense because it's difficult. You know, your job does depend on often what your team does. You know, and I can tell you that, you know, having done HR for a long time and, and a whole bunch of places, there's probably many situations when I look at everybody on my team, I've managed some really, really large teams of people across multiple disciplines and functions, you know, within that sphere of HR. And I often believe that I know what to do better than the people on my team. Mm -hmm. But I also know that that's limited. I also know that I'm limited by my own experiences. And I also know that if they don't own it, we won't get to where we need. So you have to take risks on people. You know, you have to, you have to allow people to do their best. You have to coach, encourage. The other piece that I think is difficult because we don't get rewarded for this is caring more about them as a person than as an employee. You have to balance all this stuff simultaneously. And it is not easy. You know, being a leader is not, not an easy thing to do. It's not a comfortable thing to do. It can be a lonely thing to do, to do well. It can also be the most rewarding thing you will ever do. If I think about my career right now, the thing that I'm the most proud of are all of the people that are CHROs today that used to work for me. And I'll rattle off the top of my head. I could probably think of 15 right now. That's amazing. Like to have been in a position to help a person build their career and see them go on and, and what they learn and, and knowing that you've been a catalyst for that, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. We forget pretty quickly the I did this initiative or that initiative. We rolled out this policy, that policy, whatever it may be. I mean, it's just that you're a hamster on a wheel just doing that stuff. You know, and there's a lot of cool stuff that, that I've done, but that, that's not really where the lasting value comes. Where the lasting value comes is, is if you can help people be better to learn, to grow, to get confidence, to, to provide the safe environment for them to go beyond where they think they, they know how to go, to help them understand and do some self-diagnostics. You know, I, I, many times I remember sitting down with people after, you know, after we launched something or, or they maybe did a presentation or whatever and said, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What'd you learn? You know, okay, well, yeah, that, yeah, we could have done that better. So next time let's do that. But if you don't put people in that position, you don't let them learn that. And, and I was the beneficiary of managers, some amazing, amazing people. A woman named Paula Vota at GE is an example. A guy named Fernando Martinez at the Westin Hotel. A woman named Monica DeMeo, who gave me an opportunity at 23 to run a catering company. You know, these people saw something in me, gave me that opportunity. And if we think about all of us as leaders, somebody along the way has given us those opportunities. But then it shifts to where we're the ones that need to give other people those opportunities. It's not an easy thing to do, and it certainly isn't getting any easier. That's for sure. And the complexity that our world is today, the cultures, the generations, the physical, virtual interactions that we have. So I'm curious about the helping people to become uncomfortable. And you said that, you know, that's an incredible place that you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So what advice would you give to somebody listening who wants to be uncomfortable or, or is willing to put themselves in that position, but 
doesn't really know how to go about approaching the job, the conversations, the role, whatever they're doing today and the way they are to something that is more aligned with what you're talking about in being uncomfortable and seeing things from a different perspective. What advice would you give them? Well, that advice comes from two places. You know, the first place is to be curious. Always be curious. Look for the context in terms of what you're doing. One of the things I remember going back to a team I was managing at, uh, I think this was H&R Block, and we had this 116,000 employees, right, across 10,000 locations, and like 112,000 of those people worked three months out of the year, right? I mean, just, I took the job and realized I nothing I know how to do applies here at all, <laughs> right? So, you know, we really had to learn that. And I remember sitting down with my team and asking them the question. And my team, I had about 20 or so HR generalists in, in the field. And I said, you know, how do we change the culture? Powerful question. And I said, you know, what I want you to think about is a concept called no one-to-one ROI. Now, what I mean by that is if, if a manager calls you and says, I need your help on X, where is this form? Uh, what do I do here? What's the process? You know, we have a tendency sometimes to, to answer that question and then, you know, feel good. You know, it's like we're pressing the tab in the Skinner box, getting our little pellet and feeling good for the day. But I said, we need to do more than that. I go, if every single time you had a conversation with a manager or an employee and you follow it up with one to two questions, how's it going How's the team? You know, what are you struggling with? What's working well for you? If you simply did that, could you influence the organization? And when I was started proposing this, they said, well, we, we don't have time to change the culture. And so I gave them this example. I said, let's say you go out on, on Saturday and you buy a red Volkswagen bug. And then on Monday you drive it to work. You know, what, what do you see everywhere you go? You know, you see other red Volkswagen bugs. Now, you're doing the same thing you did on Friday as you are on Monday, but you get a different result. Why is that? It's a level of awareness. And I said, if you take those interactions, you know, how many interactions do you have, you know, a year with managers? And let's say it's 10 a week and, you know, you take two weeks of vacation, which you should. So you have 500 opportunities. You're telling me you can't influence in 500 opportunities. The question is, are we fully present in those interactions and knowing how to think beyond just the, the task at hand and build those relationships, ask those questions and be curious? So that's number one. The second thing is, is more around the emotional side. Of it. And a lot of times fear keeps us from doing things that we otherwise would do. And, and, and I was speaking at a, at a great program called Year Up. I don't know if you're familiar with Year Up. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of work with them at, at DocuSign and uh, Dan Springer, who was our CEO at the time, was on their board. And I know some people that work there in Seattle and, and I got to go down and speak to them. So I, I just was talking about my career to, you know, like 50 of these, these kids, right? After I got done speaking, I'll open up for questions. The first person, the first kid raises his hand and says, you know, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Mm, good question. Oh, a pretty deep question for a 19 year old kid, you know? He said, you know, because I show up at my internships and I feel like I'm an imposter, like, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. What I said to him was, well, first of all, that's not imposter syndrome. That's reality. <laughs> you actually don't know what you're doing, you know, and that's fine. And I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about all the other people that don't feel that. Right. 
But imposter syndrome is real, you know? And so what I do is I think about some mental gymnastics or cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever you want to call it, to lower my anxiety. And I told this story in front of this kid and on all the kids that were, that were in the room. I said, just last week, I had to do a presentation to our board. And I was really nervous about it. Like, you know, we had a really tough board. You know, we had about a lot of people on that board and they were very focused. And I was talking about stuff with our cap table and equity and a whole bunch of stuff I knew they were passionate about. So I knew this wasn't going to be a smooth presentation, right? It wasn't going to be one of those just present it and they all nod their heads. And, we, you know, there was going to get a lot of discussion and some passion around. So I was nervous. And so I sat there before I went in and I thought, what's the worst case scenario? Let's say I go in and I completely bomb this and everybody thinks I'm an idiot. And because they think I'm an idiot, I get fired. Because I get fired, you know, I don't have a job. I can't pay my mortgage. You know, I end up having to move out of my house into an apartment and, you know, hang drywall or bartend for a living. And then I think, wait a minute, I have hung drywall. I have been a bartender. I've lived in an apartment and it was fine. Everything that I value in life would still be there. In fact, I'd probably be in better shape. I'd probably spend more time with my kids. I probably have less stress. And if that's worst case scenario, what am I worried about? And so I think part of the challenge is to recognize that it's normal to have these emotions. It's normal to feel fear and apprehension of, you know, of kind of sticking our neck out and, and, and doing things that we're not entirely comfortable with, you know, having opinions maybe, or really pushing back on something. If we feel like there's going to be friction, taking on an assignment that, that perhaps, you know, the previous person failed in or, or whatever it may be. And I think that is a really important thing to think about is what I've discovered is there are a lot of people that do incredibly important jobs, you know, like literally saving lives, things like that. I'm not referring to that. But for most of us who do jobs, no one dies if we do a bad. Most of the time, nothing happens at all. What is usually at stake is our own ego. And so finding what is really important to you. You know, whether that's your family, it's your faith, whether it's, you know, the things that make you happy and keep you grounded. And remember that you have the freedom to learn. You have the freedom to take some risks. You have the freedom to do these things and you will learn from them. And it's not always going to work out. I mean, like I said, I've, I've made some really hilariously bad mistakes in my career and I've learned from those, you know, and it's been fine. Those are the two things that I think are really important to think about and, and to be prepared for. You know, be curious for where those opportunities are and they're everywhere all around you. Look for those applications. And then the second piece of it is just be self-aware of what's going on internally and the emotions and the fear that you have and, you know, and, and put that in perspective. Incredible advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. It kind of puts the whole world into perspective. There's really no wrong direction you can go. There's no real mistake that you can make that will be a catastrophic end to your life in the grand scheme of our business world. So why not put yourself in a vulnerable position, take some risks, take some swings and see what happens. And you're the perfect example of what all the goodness that can come out of doing that consistently over and over and over for years. So that is incredible advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. Michael, where can people go to learn more about you and your organization? Perhaps if they're interested in working with you or just getting some advice on how to do their job better. 
Connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always pretty active out there. Michael S. Arisman. You can send me an email. If you connect with me on LinkedIn, just drop something in Messenger. Say you heard the podcast and, and you want to chat. At this point, I've been really blessed in my career to the work I do today is not to pay my mortgage or put food on the table, that sort of thing. I do what I do today, including teaching, right? Which, you know, doesn't pay a lot <laughs> at all. The work I do is I actually want to make a difference and I want to help people build their career. And I've thought a lot about it. I get, I get plenty of calls all the time about going back and being a CHRO for another company. And, you know, I'm way too young to, to retire. And, and I may do that again if, if the right opportunity comes along and it looks like it's a product. Or I'll continue to do these consulting and, you know, advisory board and, and board, board seats. But the passion I have to help people, to help people navigate, you know, that is just reach out, just ask. You know, you don't need to sign a contract to, to work with me. I mean, if that turns out to be the case, that would, you know, that'll be great. But that's not, you know, just reach out and ask questions. And, and I've had in the last year or so, I've had, you know, dozens of people who have seen me on podcasts and, and different Zoom meetings I've done and have reached out and said, hey, do you have any advice on how to handle this? I'm like, yeah, actually, you know, here's a couple of things to think about or, Here's a few versions of how I've seen companies do this in the past, or, you know, here's maybe a skeleton policy that'll get you started. And I'm happy to do that. You know, that's what it's all about. You know, I did not get to where I am in my own career without a lot of help along the way. And a lot of people that I've reached out to have been lifesavers and, you know, way too many to even, to even comment on here. But if you're listening, you know who you are. And, and there's been many people that I still reach out to today. And that's what I want to be for others. It's important to have people outside of your own company to do that. As much as we'd like to say, well, everybody, you know, inside the company and, you know, the reporting relationship and it's a great environment, it's a great culture. The reality of it is that always gets a little bit, you know, complex, shall we say, you know, do you really want to go to your boss and say, I have no idea how to do this? And sometimes, yes, you should if you don't know how, Right. But sometimes it's great to be able to reach out to somebody outside your organization. So when you can go back to your boss and say, well, here's some things I'm thinking about and, you know, ask some questions and, and help better define something. You know, one of the things I've learned, for example, is if you get asked to do a project and you don't even know what it is, start with, well, what outcome are we trying to get to? Define that and then define where are we now? And then look for the gaps between the two. And if all you do is that, that, that probably gets you three or four or five steps down the road to being able to do something that's going to have some impact. But reach out. If I can help people who are listening to this, I'm happy to do so. It's a privilege to be in an HR role. It's a privilege to be a manager and a leader of people. It can not just impact people professionally. It can impact people personally. And I get calls all the time from people who, who come back and still say, yep, I remember that time and you pulled me aside and you said, you know what, I got this big job and I think, it's, you, know, I think you can do this and I'm going to help you be successful in it. I would love to say my track record's 100% that those always work out. They don't always work out. But when they do work out, which is the majority of the time that you're able to help somebody develop, you know, that's, that's what this is all about. 
Michael, it's clear that you're all about making a difference. You've made a huge difference to me and our podcast audience today. So I want to thank you very much for your grace of spending time with us and sharing your incredible wisdom and expertise. I know there's a tremendous amount of takeaways everybody will have from this audience that they can put into action right away. We'll have a link to Michael's LinkedIn profile in the show notes so you can connect with him and send him a question because it all starts there, just asking for a question. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for your time. Take care and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Nils. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.